0: Sports show. I'm Maeve, and I'm missing Bryn again this week, but fear not because she will be rejoining us soon. But for now, I have two lovely guests joining me this episode Monica Anderson and Carol Kim, both wrestling super fans. We'll discuss why it's okay that it's fake, its complicated history with drug abuse, the Divas Revolution, and also have a bit of fun coming up with wrestling names and signature moves. And before we begin, a disclaimer. It has been a while since I recorded in person with people, so I forgot a very basic recording trick, which is to plug in headphones in order to minimize white noise in the background. So every now and then you'll hear it underneath our voices, but hopefully the content will cut through the noise. All right, let's get started. Today, I have with me Monica Anderson and Carol Kim, two of the biggest wrestling fans that I personally know. Maybe two of the five wrestling fans that I know. (laughs) But that's part of what we're going to talk about today. How wrestling has become popular, who enjoys it, and get some background on some of the other issues that it brings up, as we tend to do on this podcast. So, Monica and Carol, thank you very much for being here, and welcome to the show. Thank Thank you for
1: having us. (laughs) Glad to be here.
0: (laughs) All right, so... Let's start off with one of the biggest pieces of criticism that fans of wrestling must receive. People must tell you all the time, you know it's fake, right? So, how do you respond to that?
1: I mean, it's entertainment. You know, I'm not watching it and feeling as if this is, you know, the Olympic trials. It is what it is. Like even a regular sport like football, there's a narrative. There's a story there, so that's all it is. It doesn't bother me.
2: Carol, I agree. Um, it's sports entertainment. It's what makes wWE different from Greco-Roman wrestling or <laughs> something you could actually meddle for, or that is kind of run by a league of you know kind of standards, I guess.
0: yeah, like an
2: officiating body, right, yeah. Um, Hmm. Yeah, and I agree, it's, it's entertainment. I, I watch it because it's fun.
0: Well, something in researching this episode that kept coming up was that commentators say wrestling is kind of refreshing in that it's pretty upfront about it being fake. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of this term of, like, it's a fake diamond, but you know it's a fake diamond, and I know it's a fake diamond, so the, the trade is even. So do you feel like that's an extra appeal as compared to other sports that you know what you're getting into?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, it's over the top. You know, it's the characters, what happens. I mean, like, everything is big and bold. And they're like, it is what it is. And they're not taking themselves too seriously.
2: Yeah, and on that that token, I I would say that it's, there is a level of the audience being in on it too, mm-hmm. and I think it's different watching it when you're when you're five years old versus when you're, you know, fifteen and you realize that it's, you know, that they're not necessarily hitting each other as hard or it's a bit more controlled. But I feel like you can appreciate it just the same.
0: Maybe your appreciation even gets a little bit deeper because you're understanding that these are written stories rather than. Just, like, violent.
2: (laughs) I mean, it doesn't diminish the risk they take and kind of what they put their bodies through or to entertain millions of fans every week, but...
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of it, too, that you say, well, it is fake. That's sort of the response to the question. But at the same time, these are people who are really pushing their bodies to the limit. You know, a good wrestler, as I understand it, has to not only be a good athlete, but also... A good actor basically
2: right and even the fighting styles I feel like have diversified in wrestling where you see the MMA moves the Brazilian jiu-jitsu moves the arm bar is now a standard it's just what people do it's a good submission move that people bring into the ring you wouldn't have seen that a generation ago yeah so there is a level of I think more of a varied but still classical training that goes into a lot of what the current roster is starting to use or incorporate, and you could say it comes from the rise of UFC and just the popularity of other fighting styles. That like you're more used to seeing it, so it's okay to incorporate that
1: hmm. even in the sports entertainment. I mean, people train their whole lives for it. You know, they come up through the ranks. You know, and learning just not just the moves, but like developing their character, who they are, what they wear, what the backstory is, and they're taking a lot of risk and, you know, some of the biggest stars, like Steam re- recently had a huge accident. And it's, yes, in terms of, no, this is a story, this is forced entertainment, but it's real risk.
0: Yeah, and I think you bring something else up, which I'm curious about. Yes, it's a story, and there, there are creative writers, and there's a narrative that's sort of coming from the top down, but how much say do Wrestlers have in their character development and their storylines. Is there any information on that, or is that more kept as like a trade secret?
2: In the interviews I've heard regarding character development, there's always the opportunity to quote unquote pitch an idea to someone who's either on the creative team or the senior leadership there. But I feel like, you know, that once you have kind of proven yourself, the likelihood. Or at least gotten into the good graces of leadership, the likelihood of them listening to your ideas or let you take let you take some risks is increased. But if you're fairly new or they don't know you as mm-hmm. well, it's you kinda get what you're given until your time comes.
1: Mm-hmm. And then even too, some people shift. So like Hulk Hogan becoming part of the NWO and becoming, you know, a bad guy when he was like used to be the all American <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And when you watch like WWE Monday Night Raw there's not just one fight for the show, right? There are yeah. multiple. Mm. So that plays into it too, right? That there's opportunity for other people to be around.
2: Right, yeah, right. Um, so you've got any number of matches, but the Raw episodes are three hours long. Whoa.
0: Every so Monday, three every hours? Every Monday,
2: three hours. And there is actually a Hulu version, which is 90 minutes, where WWE will actually cut it down. So... <laughs> Which really shows you how well three hours is working.
0: Well, I also think that the impressive thing about three hours is if you think of wrestling as more of like a soap opera, as something that's more scripted, imagine if your favorite TV show, like a regular scripted genre, were three hours every week. It's like watching The Passion of the Christ every week. (laughs) (laughs) That's a (laughs) ton of (laughs) storylines. Man. Well, this actually brings up my next question of how did each of you... Get interested in wrestling. How did you become a fan? Because being a female fan must, Mm -hmm. you know, there must not be as many of you, unless I'm grossly (laughs) (laughs) have a gross misconception about the base of WWE fans. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you um, get into wrestling? Yeah, I mean, so growing up, my brothers—I have three older brothers—so they were really into
1: wrestling, and then I became into it, and then my mom got into it. And, like, every Thursday night, we would watch it. We were, like, really WCW. And, um... Did you grow up in the South? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. that
0: makes sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, explain to the listeners what WCW is and why it would make sense if Monica from the South was into it.
1: So that's World Championship Wrestling. And so, like, there used to be different... Like, even pre-this, there were different circuits at different regions. And so, you know, WCW, WWF were, like, the two biggest ones and then you know wwe kind of like swapped everything but wcw was mainly you know the south of going up to like mid-atlantic
0: okay and carol what was your moment of (laughs) (laughs) fandom
2: my wrestling story so our family came to the states
0: um in 1983 i was born a year after
2: that and while my parents worked a lot i'm the youngest of four girls actually so my grandma would raise us and you know watch tv with us and Every Saturday morning it was three hours of TV. It was an hour of American Gladiators. I love that show. <laughs> like, <laughs> an hour of um did you ever have Glow, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling? No, I don't think so. It sounds like finished. a makeup
0: line. Yeah.
1: Glow
2: <laughs> Oh, but it was um, you know, a women's only wrestling promotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that went from like eighty-six to eighty eight. Okay. Very short run. And then after that was, you know, WWF in the morning. You didn't even need to know English to watch mm-hmm. it because, again, like you said, the characters were so over the top, yeah. and you always knew who was good and who was bad. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's how we got into it.
0: Well, and, you know, before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit about this story, and you said that your grandmother has basically managed to not speak English for, like, 30 years, but that she instantly understood what was happening in wrestling. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's even just the color of the mm-hmm. clothing, you know, Ted DiBiase would come out in... A tuxedo with with rhinestone lapels. Yeah. And the stories
1: are universal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Universal yeah. themes. Especially
2: yeah. when they get into, like, the geopolitics. Yeah. Or, like, the Iron yeah. Sheik yes. versus Sergeant yes. Slaughter.
0: So that's when they, like, do Cold War riffs of, like, Russia versus the mm-hmm. USA. That is actually yeah. still happening in our current <laughs> <laughs> What, there are no, like... <laughs> Isis wrestlers or anything? <laughs> Not
1: yet. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> probably won't be.
0: <laughs> well, you guys are also touching on a lot of the history of uh, wrestling and how it came to be. So uh, when I was doing my research for the episode, it's actually a really fascinating story of how these sort of disparate enclaves were eventually consolidated into this massive, corporate, huge entertainment company that wrestling is today. So I guess it really starts in 1948 with the National Wrestling Alliance. They called it the territorial era because each promoter had really ultimate control over his region and they kind of colluded with each other and cooperated with each other to make sure that everybody maintained their business. And there would be these outlaw promoters that I was reading about. Yeah. And basically, first, they would just try to bribe performers to not participate in these outlaw leagues. And if that didn't work, then they would sometimes burn down the outlaw arenas, like just flat out commit arson. <laughs> <laughs> and then, in the most extreme cases, they would sometimes throw the territory. So they would make the matches, their own matches, so bad and so boring. That they would just decimate the market, so that there wasn't, there weren't fans in that area anymore. Oh so goodness. it was like self destruction just to protect from these outlaws. I thought that that was pretty, like talk about dedication. Oh yeah, this is like some mafia yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. um, but they this... say this is fake. <laughs> <laughs> not a game. <laughs> well, the other really not fake part about it was. This is also when the relationship between promoters and the talent starts to be ugly. I guess it was never really pretty, but uh, basically they all colluded with each other to keep wages down. And they would sometimes blacklist difficult performers who were trying to get more money or organize or anything like that. Um, And then, have you heard of stretching? No, I haven't. It's it's, it's stretching the whole you
2: would kind of work someone out so hard that they wouldn't be able to perform later?
0: It was sort of like you would intentionally injure them in a match to sort of end their career or sideline them if if certain talent were being especially (laughs) (laughs) rabble-rousers.
2: But if you look at it, even before the 1940s, it was so circus-y that you could see, you know, what room there was for these insidious characters to either exploit talent or of leverage Mm. in destructive ways yeah
0: exactly and then in the 1980s you sort of see this shift with the McMahons who are now sort of the royal family of wrestling (laughs) I'm calling them that (laughs) (laughs) so Vince McMahon was the promoter for the New York City region Mm -hmm. and his son also named Vince Vincent K McMahon Mm -hmm. right Um, He basically inherited the New York City market from his father. And from there, he bought out, bribed, crushed the other regional markets. And then especially with pay-per-view and the advent of that, he was really able to reach a national market and really do away with these sort of regional side acts. Um, And he also brought like a, sounds like a sort of corporate mentality Mm -hmm. to it. Like he wasn't playing around anymore. This wasn't, The circus era, as you were kind of telling it, and that's when we really see. Then getting into the '90s and the heyday of like Stone Cold Steve Austin, exactly, and The Rock. But along with that, you also get the whole the steroid issues, the government
2: oversight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the bigger you get, the more scrutinized you become. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, something else that I thought was really interesting, now that you mentioned sort of oversight and government regulation, is that. Wrestling, they actually took a really conscious shift from being a competition to being explicitly entertainment in order to evade certain taxes Mm -hmm. and evade certain regulations and certainly kind of talent protections. So, what do you think is kind of the responsibility of the WWE to? its talent, and to its players. They're independent contractors, Mm -hmm. so they're not full-time employees, Mm -hmm. which means that they don't get health insurance, they don't get um, any sort of unemployment benefits, Uh, their wages are very highly negotiable, Mm -hmm. Um, and yet, you know, as consumers, you're enjoying this product, and part of that product is being brought to you by this system. So, How do you kind of reconcile those two things? Or what are your bigger thoughts on kind of how the product, how the sausage gets made?
2: For me, I think it's at this point in in wrestling and all that's been said about it, it's hard for talent to go in without knowing these things up front. So going along with the assuming the physical risk, there's assuming a, a level of like financial career risk, any sort of risk, but for a lot of folks if this was their dream since they first saw Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania then then who's to tell them no i think people are pretty well briefed going in that this is the lifestyle
1: i think for me it's tough seeing like i said i i was a big like mid 90s fan like so it's tough to see like, macho man or ultimate warrior or see what's happening to the people that I grew up because these guys are dying, but they're not even that old. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like thinking about what is your life as a wrestler going to be 20 years from now? Are you even going to be, you know, are you going to make it to 65? Yeah. And so in terms of what their responsibility is, it's kind of tough. Um, Like she was saying, you know, I feel like there is, an appetite for people this is their dream they want to do this and I think that a lot of people now know what they're getting into as opposed to before but it is kind of tough because I feel like I don't know if they're really getting doing a good job of the veterans so to speak like Mm -hmm. you know these are the men that kind of made the sport but Mm -hmm. what happens when they're not in the line like you know
0: Uh, sorry for that text message interruption. (laughs) It's the one downfall of having a back. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you compare it to more mainstream sports, like I, I kept thinking about the NFL when I was putting together some of the questions for this episode. The NFL is this horrible organization that, you know, it has so many pitfalls, um, not only the way that it handles kind of player, um, discipline, but, Obviously they have a huge injury problem with concussions and policies around that. And, but, you know, at the same time, like there's an NFL players union and, you know, especially for Tom Brady, they've been very effective in protecting (laughs) player interests. And, you know, there's another example of where, yes, people know what they're getting into. Are people aware of the full extent of what they're getting into? How much do they need to be informed? And, I mean, do you think that there's ever a scenario or a situation where the performers in wrestling, you know, unionize or at least have some more clout to negotiate better terms for themselves?
2: Regarding unions, I uh, I remember hearing this anecdote of Jesse the Body Ventura back in the day wanted to unionize and Hulk Hogan ratted him out to Vince McMahon mm-hmm. and whatever steam that was going on, you know, Regarding getting wrestlers to unionize was completely deflated. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you see now is that you have these things called legends contracts where WWE tries to take care of you know, veteran wrestlers, or especially of the era where it was like a much harder lifestyle and fewer restrictions on what you could do. Um, so things like the wellness policy, I, I feel like, I mean, it's as good as any enforced policy. <laughs> What's
0: the wellness policy?
2: It's uh it, it's pretty much them trying to keep track of like who's using what, mm-hmm. um, so they'll random drug test sort of thing. Um, with um, between that and the legends contracts, where they're trying to get old wrestlers, you know, get putting them back on the payroll, which mm-hmm. also includes like taking care of them and they, having them do appearances and stuff. Um, that's I, I guess that could be one way they're trying to take care of you know old fan favorites. Yeah.
0: Well, so I think another really large part of wrestling, which we've been sort of dancing around, but let's address it directly now, is the issue of drug use and especially steroids. That's sort of this open secret in wrestling that any even casual observer looks at somebody who's wrestling (laughs) and is like, that doesn't seem natural. (laughs) Um, So, and you know, steroids have very serious effects on these wrestlers and you two have even named some already who have come to an early demise Um, and there was one excerpt that really struck me in terms of how widespread uh, drugs are in the WWE and this is from an article by Dan O'Sullivan and he's writing in Jacobin magazine he wrote the fatal drug overdoses too many to count Brian Pillman, Brian Crush Adams, Ravishing Rick Rude Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, Louis Spicoli. Three of the Von Erich brothers killed themselves. A fourth, the star, David Von Erich overdosed at the tender age of 25. Macho man Randy Savage and his lovely consort, the alluring Miss Elizabeth, are both dead. Miss Elizabeth's last boyfriend, Lex Luger, is partially paralyzed from a stroke. Dino Bravo was shot dead while watching hockey. His murder has never been solved. Chris Canyon, the first WWE wrestler to come out as gay, sued McMahon over the, quote, independent contractor scam, fell out of work, and, suffering from bipolar depression, killed himself. Junkyard Dog fell asleep driving and crashed. Eddie Guerrero died of a heart attack at 38, so racked by pain in his final bouts that he could barely wrestle. The list doesn't end. So, it sort of seems yeah. like there's something going on. Yeah. yeah. So... You know, what do you think about drug use in wrestling? It seems like it's an open secret, like it's condoned with a sort of wink and a nod. Mm -hmm. Does that feel true?
1: I mean, like growing up as a kid, I didn't know. You know, I was like, oh, you know, whatever. You know, but you hear more about it, and I think clearly they're all juicing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, they're probably all juicing in the NFL, but like people (laughs) don't talk about that either. I just don't think that they really care. I really don't. I feel like this is what they feel that they need to do to get bigger, to, you know, have their muscles recover. And I don't see anyone, there's not, you know, it's not like the government is going to come in and do, you know, congressional hearings like they did for (laughs) baseball. So it's like, you know, what's their incentive for really?
2: I think what concerns me along with the steroid Mm -hmm. use is like the painkiller addiction and the painkiller abuse because it's, what did they say? Like similarities between the NFL and the WWE, it's, it's still like getting hit repeatedly at 10 miles an hour mm-hmm. by a vehicle, but there's no off season for a lot of the wrestlers. Yeah. Your off yeah. season is getting injured pretty yeah.
0: much. Yeah. 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 So maybe one of the most infamous cases of drug use and or abuse in the WWE is Chris Benoit. Um, so, does one of you want to tell the listeners out there about who he was and what happened to him?
1: Yeah, he was a wrestler um WCW. He was part of the Four Horsemen, which were, like, my favorite wrestlers at the time. And I can't remember exactly what year it was, but um, he killed his wife and his son and then committed suicide. And it's one of those things, it was like really shocking. And I felt like that was one of the first times that there was really a lot of media coverage making still, like, it's empty pillars to what is going on with, you know, in terms of what's happening in these wrestlers' heads and depression mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, you know, it was also one of those days where I felt like, you know, the wrestling, you know, higher-ups were just kind of like, you know this is a tragedy, but it doesn't really. You know, it's not a widespread thing. It's not. I felt like I don't want to say push it under the rug, but I just feel like it was kind of like that was him, and that's what he did. That doesn't have anything to do with us or mm-hmm. our organization. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and then after that, it's he was just never mentioned again. Yeah, exactly. So it kind kind of, of, of like scrubbed from the
1: mm-hmm. records. Yeah.
0: Which is, I mean, I I, I want to. I want to imply to listeners like how big a deal that was mm-hmm. because he was one of the major major yeah. attractions yeah mm-hmm. and then they just tried to erase him completely mm-hmm. right so i mean it, you know it's hard to watch like any sort of even like the
2: eddie guerrero retrospectives where they were very close but no one ever mentions chris benoit
0: um so you mentioned eddie guerrero yeah so who was he and what did he have to do with chris benoit
2: they had come. He, well, Eddie Guerrero came from a wrestling family, um, the Guerrero family out of Mexico. And yeah. you know, he was uh, he was WCW, WCW mm-hmm. also, right? And I guess he and Chris Benoit come to WWE around the same time. So and and he he was the one who died at thirty eight of a heart attack mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a hotel room.
1: Yeah.
2: And after that, he became this lionized, celebrated wrestler. His After he passed away, his wife actually worked as a, you know, as a personality in the WWE product. Wow. So, I mean, she she left a few years ago, but to kind of have that support for their family, and then you look at what happened to Chris Benoit.
0: Well, it's, to me, it sort of comes back to this issue again of agency and who is responsible for their actions. I mean, I was reading about um, what happened with Chris Benoit and the post-mortem apparently revealed that his brain was like an 85-year-old dementia patient and that he had more brown matter than gray matter. And, you know, apparently the steroid usage had also messed with his testosterone levels so much that he began taking testosterone injections and the toxicology report revealed that had 59 times the normal male level of testosterone in him when he died. So, you know, on the one hand, he did certain things. He killed his family. He killed himself. Clearly, it was related to drug use and drug abuse. But, you know, again, it's this question of, like, well, would that have happened if he weren't in the situation that he... if he weren't in the profession that he was? If he hadn't... if there were... I don't know, maybe more oversight, more, I don't know, structure, more something. It just seems hard to believe that the WWE sort of, like, gets away with this, Mm -hmm. almost.
1: But I think it could also speak to a bigger question of how we talk about mental illness as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the work that he was in and feeling like, you know, he's injecting himself with testosterone and he's working out, I don't know how many hours a day. But it also goes to speak of, like, you know, if he's there at work and he's good, you know? I mean, he's, you know, he seems okay, maybe there's something up, but I'm really not going to get into that, you know? So, I mean, I think, you know, how we talk about mental illness and things like that as a whole are not, you know, always productive or proactive.
0: It's just really interesting. It's interesting to think about wrestling because it exists in this space between entertainment and sports. And there's so much oversight and regulation of drugs and sports. There's hardly any regulation or oversight, you know, in like the entertainment world, like actors who overdose or things like that. And so like, where does the responsibility lie for the WWE as an organization to be dealing with this? And it, I think, also relates back to the status as independent contractors and the lack of health insurance and so, you know, I could imagine that you very easily feel like you have no other options. Um, so certainly a difficult legacy for the WWE to be handling. Right. told your stories of how you became a fan of wrestling. I'm always really interested in just the experience of female fandom. So what have your experiences been just as a female fan of wrestling? You know, historically women have often been props in wrestling. So as a woman watching that, what what are your thoughts?
2: For me in high school, that was kind of peak attitude era where it was um the bra and panty matches or sable would come out in like pasties with straps. Like, yeah. that's <laughs> much what she was wearing. And to, like, there was certainly, it was a different time. But, like, you really didn't get to see a lot of, you know, women in the mm-hmm. ring. I think China kind of changed that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, she held the intercontinental title.
1: Into mm-hmm. too, with China, there was always this, but she looks like a man. Mm-hmm. Or, like, she's so muscular. She's, not feminine, she's, you know what I mean, yeah. like, is she really a woman, yeah. you know, so right. it was good to see her because, like, at that point, I really didn't, you know, see a lot of female wrestlers, but there was just kind of the kind of talk with, the way people talk about Serena Williams or Ronda I was just about yeah. to say, yeah, kind of level of, yeah, she's good, but, like, she's out of track like, that, that, that whole narrative of, you know, how she looked versus what she could do in the ring, yeah,
0: Well, so this is a good segue into the Divas League. Give us a little background on who are divas and what's their sort of status right now in the world of wrestling. So,
2: divas are at least WWE main roster female talent. Um, So, superstars are men and women are divas, (laughs) which is. Uh, fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Expected. It's <but> not reactive. <laughs> but the state of divas. So they declared a divas' revolution earlier this year, where, you know, piggybacking off of the successes of women in, you know, athletic women, whether it was the U.S. women's soccer team, Serena Williams, even one of the ads like featured the. The two female Ranger School graduates. Uh You're like, are you really taking credit (laughs) for (laughs) the Rangers now? (laughs) So it's about like female empowerment Mm -hmm. and developing just a more competitive and more athletic female wrestler, Um, but they're still called divas.
0: So who are some of the more compelling divas today, and like, what are their general storylines, and what makes them? good to watch or maybe not so good to watch? Mm.
2: Okay, so a lot of the regarding the Divas Revolution, they brought up three female wrestlers from NXT, which is um, a WWE product, but it's people, it's been called developmental, so Mm -hmm. this is where you train, you cut your teeth and you, you eventually come up to main roster. The criticism was that the NXT women's matches were by far better huh. than the WWE those matches. So they brought up Charlotte, who is Ric Flair's daughter. Um, so Ric Flair comes out a lot in, in the comments, <laughs> if you're ever yeah. watching. Uh, Sasha Banks and Becky Lynch, who have all trained um, and, and put on some amazing matches in NXT. But the criticism is that now they're just kind of languishing. They don't have much of a huh. storyline. They The authority, which is like, the storyline governing body of WWE has split them into these little factions, or these little, these little trios, and, and no one's really doing anything. Hmm. You still have a Dita, diva's title, which is in the shape of a butterfly. Oh. Another... <laughs> <laughs> That's disappointing.
0: <laughs> well, so this kind of brings up um, earlier this year, back in February, there was a hashtag that trended on Twitter. And it was hashtag give divas a chance uh, because there was a, uh, a divas matchup on one of the raw shows and their fight lasted for like maybe 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, there was, there was sort of like fan outcry of, well, how can this be much of a revolution when you're not even giving them anything to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and the WWE, kind of responded and stephanie mcmahon in particular was like oh we hear you and things will improve and just wait it was sort of this like you don't even know what might be in <laughs> store you know like there's a storyline and it just hasn't <laughs> been dot, dot, yet. Dots. Yeah. Um, so do you feel like the divas have been given a chance
2: not really i, I would say it's you know, if you have to call it a revolution, then is it really much of a revolution? <laughs> Why can't they just go out there and put on great matches? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the divas are pretty much sequestered to themselves, so they don't really interact with male talent. Hmm. So it's, you know, people still treat it like a popcorn match, and mm-hmm. that's
0: Sasha Banks wrestles, Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's really good. So I, I understand the optics of, you know, you wouldn't want maybe men and women wrestling each other because it's evocative of domestic abuse or some other things. Yeah. But I mean, these are creative people. They, they've now, this, the WWE mm-hmm. puts out apparently three hours of scripted <laughs> television a week. Yeah. Like you would think that they could incorporate some men and women's storylines together without explicitly having them like destroy each yeah. other. Right.
1: I mean, it comes down to like, who are you giving the headline to? Who's the marquee talent? Where yeah. are you putting your energy and everything into it when it doesn't seem like it's going to the details?
2: The only two women I see right now who are in like a male-related storyline just come out as valets. They don't actually, they're not in a wrestling capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're valets? Valets.
0: Valets, what's okay. a valet? So it's pretty much your ring escort. score. Mm. Oh, up yeah. to
2: the ring. Oh, them. yeah. Interesting. Uh, you look at n- just how women are portrayed, even like shows like Total Divas. It's more about the real life of women who happen to do this, mm-hmm. or um, the lingerie football league. Oh yeah. Show yeah. or it's women who happen to play lingerie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it's I, I feel like you you really never get to see that. You know, the athletics first. Mm-hmm. That that perspective. It's mm-hmm. always just about relationships. Mm-hmm. It's always about, yeah. You know, women and women, women versus women mm-hmm. in, in these in these like, reality-ish storylines. Yeah, lines. yeah.
0: Exactly. So, Total Divas is their reality mm-hmm. show of how these women get into the WWE.
2: Or once they're in, it's navigating relationships. Mm-hmm. Nikki, Bella doesn't, or Nikki Bella wants to get married and have children. John Cena doesn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like these, like the, yeah. this is yeah. on its
0: fourth season of this. It's, <laughs> <laughs> Another storyline that's getting old. No. <laughs> um, the last couple of things here before we wrap up, you know, we've obviously talked about some of the issues surrounding women in wrestling and whether um, there's more potential there that's being unmet. Um, it's also been argued that the WWE has a race problem and that the minority wrestlers who do sort of get to the main event are um, either jobbers, meaning that they are the guys who the superstars get to beat up, um, mm-hmm. and further that they're these like really, really basic racial stereotypes mm-hmm. of like thugs mm-hmm. and criminals. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. <laughs> <or sheiks. laughs> Um, so, you know, would you agree that there's a lack of creativity in what you could do with minority wrestlers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, from my, in my time watching the product, you really don't see black wrestlers holding any titles. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if there has been a black
0: champ, No. Um,
2: and, you know, as an Asian person, I, there was a whole storyline, and it was just so terrible about... You know, Kayentai, Mr. Yamaguchi. Uh, oh. yeah, Mrs. Yamaguchi yeah. was getting with another wrestler. <laughs> and there was, like, a chopping off of, or a supposed, mm-hmm. alluded to chopping off of
0: a wrestler's body part. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it. We have an explicit rating. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> with,
2: with, like, a, with a samurai sword. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Or the characters Eddie Guerrero has played. Um, Latino, he we why we, we cheat we steal that was the tagline. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I watched this promo for um, Crime Time. Oh yes <laughs> <laughs> Which were you know these two black wrestlers and it was just awful. They were yeah. just like mugging people with the bandanas <laughs> covering <laughs> half their yeah. face in yeah. their wife beaters yeah. with their pants down like every awful stereotype of black men. Mm-hmm. They were, they were precisely mm-hmm. that. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, like, underrepresentation. and there's misrepresentation, and that's a whole yeah. other thing. I mean, like, I don't ever remember any Asian wrestlers. If they were Samoan, they would have, you know, some kind of face yeah. paint, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. I look at The Rock, and I feel like The Rock, in a sense, was maybe able to transcend it, because people didn't really know what he <laughs> you know yeah. well I was reading about yeah. The Rock specifically about yeah. like
0: when they discussed his race or ethnicity yeah. it was I mean he he's like a third generation wrestler yeah. so it was very linked to his specific mm-hmm. family story yeah. mm-hmm. rather than you know just slapping on some stereotype yeah. onto some like up and comer yeah, new black exactly. wrestler or something exactly. yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean it just seems like I think just what keeps coming back to me throughout this conversation is that like people who enjoy wrestling enjoy it for the melodrama sure but there's like a way to do melodrama right and there's a way that it really flops and that these like tired old stereotypes are actually hindering like how good this could be as an entertainment product because you could be so much inter- more interesting if you you know, navigated away from some of those yeah. knee-jerk yeah. I mean, depictions. Even
2: the character of Rusev, who is now the Bulgarian brute, like, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was, like, up to this year or last year, he would come out and like with a Russian flag, mm-hmm. and there would be a picture of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah.
0: Which is like, you know, we did the 80s. Yeah. We, were, we did it, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, Okay, okay. well, so the last question that I want to ask you both is, you know, we've referenced a lot of people by both their given name (laughs) and also their wrestling name. Um, What would your wrestling name be?
1: Well, okay. So this was originally my name if I was going to be a rapper, but then my friend was like, "That's not a rapper name. That's a wrestling name." So it's Texas Tornado.
0: Wow. Yeah, love it. And yeah. would you would you have a signature move or yeah, a costume the from the from the top rope? Brilliant. Boom. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, you've really thought this one through. Mm-hmm. I'm but, impressed. You just never
1: know when you gotta bust out some wrestling booths. That's so true, true. Yeah. that's true. And you have a regulation ring. <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> but I like how yours
2: is regionally based, it's rare, Very throwback. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Carol, wrestling name? I don't know. I would probably be the publicist. I op- I've always
2: gravitated towards like the profession based, mm-hmm. like Brutus the barber beefcake. Um.
1: <laughs> like he was a barber.
2: He had giant hedge clippers, and if you if you lost him, you got your haircut. <laughs> but, um, what punishment? Right? right. But I I would probably go like some sort of publicist route, and then my finishing move it would be called the vanity like. <laughs> There is nothing cheaper than posting something just for likes. Um, yes. And my and although it'd be called a vanity like, it would be a cheap shot. Oh. Just for that, I like
0: that. I love the built-in yeah. irony. Yes. Love it. Love it. <laughs> so like, it's so next top. level. Yeah. Yeah.
1: See. Layers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love it. Both of you, wrestling fans, we're looking for a little more intrigue, complication. I think you have something. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so, so much for joining the show. This was very enlightening. Well, as we say on the podcast, good game, Monica.
1: <laughs> right back at <got> you <laughs> Good game, Carol. We're
0: right back. <laughs> okay, that does it for this week. Thanks again to Monica and Carol for joining the show. We're going to take a little bit of a holiday break, but we will be back in January. And in the meantime, you can always keep up with us online. We are on Facebook, Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. We're on Twitter at NYBF Sports. Email, we are nybfsports at gmail.com. And now you can visit our fully-fledged website, NYBFSports.com, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. Thank you so much for listening in 2015, and we can't wait to talk more in the new year. Good game!